Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Seven one five two one two three four four nine is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press one for more options. Life shouldn't have lingering pains, regrets, or grudges. Those are meant to be in the past as we move forward. But I found myself unable to move forward and leave those feelings behind. I didn't think that the next day, John would barge into my room, screaming for me to get up. He was sobbing and struggling to speak. Something is wrong with Mom, he said. When I ran upstairs, I didn't expect to see you laying in the living room hallway, lifeless. A part of me knew that everything would change the moment I saw you. I call your name in despair and hoped for a response from you. I held your lifeless and cold hand. I told John to call the police, but your phone didn't work. It froze, just like us. Why was everything going wrong in that morning at 6 a.m.? In panic, I told John to run to our neighbor and ask for help. I ran back to you as I stood by your side. Color, warmth, life, they were all draining from you. I knew that you were gone. Our neighbor ran frantically to you and started CPR. I heard him tell John to go get our other neighbor, a certified paramedic. John returns with the paramedic. I knew that the agonizing pain coursing through me would be torture as I watched them trying to save you. Staring at them blankly for what seems like an eternity, I began to feel life draining from me too. I clutched your hand and thought about the little grudges that I held against you, the same grudges that prevented us from building a bond. I was cold towards you, cold like your body and pale skin, as life faded from you. I stared blankly at you and sunk into an abyss of regrets, pain, and guilt. Silence drowned me as I became numb. The dim kitchen lights, faces expressed with concern, loud voices, and ear-piercing sirens all became muted and one with my tears. The paramedics and the police finally arrived to help us. All of this brought me back from the void. I didn't want to tell my younger siblings, Richard and Gigi, that Mom might be dead after today. They were too young to understand what had happened. But I walked into the room with tears welding my eyes and said that something was wrong with Mom and that they should get up. I watched them cry cluelessly to what was happening. I walked across the other room and calmed down into crying Jen, who was just five months old at the time. All of us were gathered around you as the paramedics repeatedly tried to bring you back. I could see the frustration in their eyes, and their arms were getting tired from performing CPR for over 30 minutes. They resorted to machines to aid them. Any second now, I knew what they were going to say. I wanted them to stop. I wanted them to tell me that it was over, that you were gone. I wanted to wake up from this nightmare. With disparity, which felt like mercy to me, one of them said, I think we're going to have to call it. Time of death, 6.30 a.m., November 7th, 2017, they said. I thank the paramedics, officers, and my neighbors for trying to save you. It was then it felt like the world, time, and my heart had all stopped. Why must it be like this? Why did it feel as if you still had a chance? Even though I knew that you were gone the moment I saw you, a part of me believed that there was still hope. But there wasn't. The past 40 minutes of agony had finally stopped. The paramedics, with sorrow, turned to face us, the now motherless children. One of the policemen had asked John to give them our father's number so they could notify him, the now widower. The rest of the policemen comforted us, trying to distract us from the paramedics enclosing your body in the black body bag. They moved us downstairs and began investigating the scene. They were interrogating us. Did you expect any of this? 
What is in the medicine cabinet? Were there any signs of this happening? What is with all the liquor bottles and the crushed beer cans? Did you read this note? Do you have any idea what this means? I spiraled out of control, dazed by the bombardment of questions. I answered blankly. No, I didn't expect this. No one expects to wake up to a dead parent. The medicine cabinet contains medicine and Hmong herbal teas. I don't know where all the empty liquor bottles and the crushed beer cans came from. I didn't see my parents drink last night. No, I didn't see or read this note. I don't know what that means other than the fact that she wanted me to wake her up when we were about to head to school. The note written on the back of the ultrasound scan of you carrying Jen had said, Michelle, wake me up when you're going to school. It had stuck with me because it held so much hope and irony. Hope that you had every intention to live and that something just happened to you and not because you decided to take your own life. The irony was that it was an ultrasound scan, proof of life while we had proof that you were dead. Fifteen, thirty, forty or so minutes went by, and our father arrived. He didn't see the black body bag containing his wife. All he saw were his children sobbing downstairs and the caution tape blocking upstairs. A policeman had told him what had happened, and he broke down. It was then when I saw our father cry. Someone who was always a rock for everyone else had finally cracked. I stopped crying and dried his tears. I braced him when he nearly collapsed. The next few minutes were spent with my dad notifying our family members and the staff at our schools. Our father broke down every time he hung up and called the next relative. I notified my sisters in Rapids and St. Paul, and they both dropped everything to rush home to me that same night. When they finally arrived a few hours later, all of us were in silence. In that time of despair, I thought about each time you tried to meet me halfway, but I was ignorant and pushed you away. We suffered from isolation and allowed the past to come in between us when all we wanted was companionship. You suffered because of my inability to let go of the past. Over time, you realized that there was a weak bond and began to keep everything to yourself. You cried with no shoulder to lean on, no arms to brace you and comfort you, and no hand to wipe away the tears that poured down like heavy rain. You struggled alone, felt alone, was alone, and died alone. The consequences of my actions towards you started to take its toll on me. I was living in a world where I carry the regrets of not being there for you, in your darkest hours with me. The guilt of letting you suffer alone and being a reason why you suffered consumed me, leaving a dark void. Living in the past and reminiscing about the good times we rarely had was my way of coping with the agonizing pain that was coursing through me. The times you smiled and laughed, instead of crying and frowning, were replaying my head like a broken record. One memory in particular became the broken record and moment that I couldn't stop reliving. It was the day before your death, November 6, 2017. We were looking through old childhood photos of my siblings and of you and dad. In every photo and captured was our bright smiles with laughter and life, blazing so brightly in our eyes. You seemed to be at peace. We were at peace. It was like a change of weather, from chaotic thunderstorms, blizzards, and hailstorms, to a calm ocean wave with a subtle breeze that whistled happily amongst the shiny, clear blue skies. For once, instead of angry words, we talked to each other with soft words that filled the room with comfort and brought happiness to each other. I smiled at a photo of you and I sitting down by the cherry blossom tree out front in our mom clothes, as you told me softly and with sincerity, Michelle, please keep these photos for when I'm gone. They'll bring you peace and help you remember the good times we've all had together. I will, I said, with a sincere smile as I looked at the photos once more before putting them away. 
Those words, meant for the future, the future that felt so far away from now, became my tomorrow. What were your last words became the first and only nightmare that I couldn't wake up from. My days and nights became indifferent as my nightmare, pain, guilt, and regrets cycled and consumed me. Had I known that it was the last time I would see you again, I would have stopped time and held on to you, and held on to that moment of happiness. But it wasn't just me who was struggling to hold on to you. It was John as well. Monday, November 6, 2017. The day before your death. We didn't have school that day because of the end of the quarter for school. That day, around 3 p.m., we were all in the living room looking at old photos and just reminiscing on our past. I don't remember much, but I remember you saying to keep these photos as memories for when Dad and yourself are gone. It's one of those things where you expect your parents to say, and when you hear them lecture, it's in one ear and not the other. To say I saw any signs of what was to come the next morning would be a lie, let alone any signs of unhappiness from you that day. Genuinely, it was a happy moment that we all cherished. Then everything changed on Tuesday, November 7th, 2017. 5.50 a.m., my alarm goes off. Being the lazy teen I was, I snoozed it. I wish I didn't. I heard a thud during the next 10 minutes, but I didn't think anything of it. My 6 a.m. alarm goes off, and it was time to get ready for school. I walk up the 14 stairs and turn right to the end of the hallway where the bathroom was. At the start of the hallway, you laid face down on the floor, lifeless. I froze for a second. My whole existence flashed before me. In panic, I run up to you, shaking you, trying to wake you up. Your pale face, blue lips, cold hands, and the smell of alcohol on you was all I needed to know. I lost the one woman who cared for me and gave me everything. I ran downstairs to wake up my sister. I scream out, Michelle, mom's laying on the ground, not moving. We run up the stairs and hover over your lifeless body. Michelle tells me to grab your phone from your room and dial number one. So I did, but I couldn't get the phone to unlock. I tell her it's not working and I panic. She tells me to run to the neighbors and get help. I ran out the house barefoot across the street and rang my neighbor's doorbell repeatedly comes down and I tell him that you were laying on the ground not breathing. We rush back to the house and he starts administering CPR to you. He does CPR for five minutes and tells me to go to another neighbor's house because they were EMTs and knew how to do CPR. And so I did. I didn't care that my feet were bleeding on the gravel road because your life was on the line. I tell the neighbors the same thing I told the other one. Soon an ambulance and police arrived. We were huddled in a kitchen with all five of us siblings. We were getting questioned by the police, and our answers were all the same. We didn't know why you were dead. 45 minutes later, they notified Dad. He arrived home. The distraught in his eyes will always break me. I've never seen my dad cry before. I idolized my dad growing up, and to see him in pain like this hurt. He started calling my half-siblings and their relatives to let them know that you had just died. His voice crushed me, as I thought about how I used to have it all. The dream family, perfect house, perfect friends. I used to be outgoing and full of life. Couldn't believe the reality I was living in. I watched as they carried your lifeless body out on a stretcher. That moment right there was when I died alongside you, Mom. Then, the funeral happened three weeks after your death. The week of the funeral, relatives would come over and help out with preparations. They would ask me what happened, and I would tell them. But every time I did, a part of my heart shattered. I hated the attention everyone gave me, telling me I was brave for what I did. I didn't care about bravery because it didn't change the outcome. My mom was still dead and nothing was going to change that. Saturday was day one of the funeral. To be honest, it was a blur. I didn't remember much about that day. 
I remember my friends being there. That was kind of a shock because I didn't really tell anyone that my mom died. Mostly because I didn't want the pity or the usual sorry for your loss speech. My teachers also showed up. Mr. Becky, my tech ed teacher, showed up and donated a good sum of money. My English teacher, Mrs. Mo, also showed up. When I saw her, I went up to her and thanked her for coming. And she gave me a hug. I didn't know how much I needed that hug. She reminded me so much of mom and it just felt like home, I guess. The first day, a Saturday, consisted of everyone celebrating your life with your favorite foods and music, as well as relatives from both sides were reuniting. It was a bittersweet moment for them, as it was a tragedy that brought them together. I remember minding my own business and carrying Jen around in my arms as our relatives asked how she was and how sad it was to hear that my five-month-old sister had just lost their mom and that I was now hers as well as my three younger siblings' new mother figure. It was repetitive and a constant journey reminder that she was no longer here and my new role was to fill in your shoes, to be a mother of 15. While skating through the sea of people with express somberness and uncomfortable gazes, I locked eyes with two of my friends at the time. Ashton and Pat. I was shocked to see them. I told them that you had passed that day of, but I didn't tell them the funeral date, so it was surprising to see that they would rather spend their Saturday at a morgue with me than to do something more uplifting and productive. It meant a lot to me, as we caught up on what I was missing out at school, and the latest drama between so-and-so, and just anything to get my mind off of you and this whole nightmare. I was jealous that they could walk out of here, knowing that that night, they didn't have to bear the burdens and sorrows of mine and be thankful that it wasn't them. But I don't blame them. In fact, I told them to show their mothers more love as if it was their last day and to cherish them while they still can. I didn't cry that night, nor the next day. They told me that some of our teachers were here and I should go say hello. My honors chemistry teacher at the time, Mr. Hearn, and my former honors English teacher and her husband, Mr. and Mrs. Bohm, came to your funeral. They expressed their sorries and told me not to focus on school, as Mr. Han would catch me up when I get back. It was a relief to see familiar new faces, another escape from reality. Day two. Day two was memorable. Towards the end of the night, we had to say our goodbyes to mom. I held all my emotions in the whole weekend, and when I saw her face again, I broke down. I tried to stay strong for the younger kids. In my mind, I thought I had to, because these kids shouldn't see me sad. They should see me happy and proud. Proud of who our mother was. Proud of what she's done for us. I couldn't say goodbye. I just wasn't ready to accept the reality. So I whispered under my breath, Thank you for everything, Mom. I love you. Sunday was the day we sent you to heaven with the drums and the flutes and said one of our last goodbyes before burying you the next day. Your ghostly and sunken complexion masked with a bright blue eyeshadow and bright red lipstick with faint lines for eyebrows and faded freckles haunted me. Every time I stared at you, I didn't recognize you. In fact, it was as if someone had replaced you in the casket and this woman was not my mother. That was the first time I was hit with realization that the face of death is grotesque and unrecognizable. I was petrified when we had to say goodbye to you. I didn't want the memory of you to be replaced by this corpse. I didn't want to forget you. I didn't want to lose you. But I already did. And there was nothing that I could do to bring you back. No amount of repenting, crying, and mourning could ever bring you back. As I wiped her cheek with a warm towel, wiping away the tears that weren't there, but instead are welding in my eyes. I didn't say anything to you, because there was nothing to say. Nothing could ever ease the pain that we both felt. I just hope that you are happier and well-loved in heaven. The next day was the burial. It was the hardest day of my life. 
Again, we had to say goodbye, and again, I couldn't do it. I was not ready to. This woman gave me everything, brought me into this world, and showed me how to love. She made me the person I was and who I am today. I couldn't just let her go. One day came around, and the police had escorted the hearse and our cars to your final resting place. We picked out a place where you're surrounded by other Hmong people so you didn't feel out of place, as well as by an angel statue, guiding you to heaven. As I lowered your casket to the ground, it had finally hit me that once I shoveled this pile of softened dirt onto your casket, that this was the last time I would truly ever be able to see you. Yet I still had nothing to say, not even a goodbye. John felt the same as I could see him struggling to hold in his tears. I felt remorseful and guilty that the numbness I had felt had made me unable to grieve for you and say a final goodbye as well. To this day, it's still hard to talk to you, and you can't even be there to bicker and argue with me anymore. To disconnect, press 1. To record your message, press 2. Goodbye.